Amen. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles provided for you uh, uh, on the center of each aisle. and under the, under the first chair in the aisle, there are some Bibles. So if you don't have one, maybe flag somebody down who's sitting on the edge and they'd be happy to pass one to you. Um, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, let me say that we would love it if you would take that one. That would be our gift to you. Uh, and we'd love to talk to you about anything that you might read there. We're going to be in Isaiah 40 today. This is, this is the third week in our new series in Isaiah. And if you've been here, if you haven't been hit with us, rather, for the first couple, let me just say quickly that our approach to Isaiah is not going to be to go verse by verse through the whole thing because we're not going to spend the seven years it would take us to get through all 66 chapters and do them justice. Uh, we're doing, we're doing uh, uh, more of an overview series in this book uh, it's a book that has been recognized by interpreters ever since it was written as one of the most important in the scriptures because it captures all these themes that are everywhere else and puts them all into one place and really gets us ready to see Jesus in all of his glory, why he matters, why we need him. What we're doing is breaking Isaiah down into its main themes and then trying to take passages that explain those themes in a really clear way. And we started with what Isaiah tells us about God. Last week we looked at what may be the most famous passage about God in Isaiah, which is that vision Isaiah has of him in Isaiah chapter 6, where he sees him somehow mysteriously and is struck by his holiness and sort of dumbfounded, doesn't even know what to say. What we saw there is that, is that Isaiah's take on God breaks down into three parts. God is set apart from us. He is holy because he, of his transcendence, because of his moral perfection and because of his love in all of these three areas he's not like us he's not like anything else in the world and that's what it means for him to be holy so what we're doing now using that passage as a as sort of a launching pad the next three weeks we're going to take one week each on these these dimensions if you will these sides to God's holiness and try to get a, a better grip on them what we've been saying really from the beginning of our series is that it's really, really hard to connect with God as he's presented in Isaiah because he's such a big God in Isaiah, because he's holy and outside of our experience, not like anything we've ever seen. I mean, this is maybe a clunky analogy, but it, uh, it's one thing to, to read about what it would be like to live in medieval China, for example. Right? I can read about it. I can read about you know, what kinds of food that they ate and what their jobs most likely were, what sorts of transportation they had or clothing. But... But I can never really understand it because I can't experience it. I can't see it. I can't smell the smells and taste the tastes. And what, what we're saying when we say that God is transcendent is that he is outside of our experience. He's above us and anything else that we can know in this world. And, and therefore, it's, it's really tough to connect with that, to, to see it and understand it. The trouble we have connecting with God's transcendence, the fact that he's bigger and beyond anything we know and experience, is the reason that Isaiah 40 is in the Bible. It's one of the clearest attempts to address this problem, to give us a sense, a deeper understanding of God and his difference from us. And that's where we're going to park for today. We're going to park in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 31. It's a struggle to understand and to enjoy this side of who God is. But it's worth the work 
Because unless we can see Him as this being that is far removed from us, not bound by us or beholden to us, we won't be ready to see the beauty that's in the fact that He has come to us, that He has given Himself to us and promised to make us like Him. We've got to understand His transcendence before we understand the beauty of His love, in other words. So that's our task today. That's what we're going to try to do. In two simple steps, I want to show from, from Isaiah 40 how to see God's transcendence. What this thing that makes God very different from us, how can we latch onto it and see it? That's what this passage is mostly concerned with. And then the next step is, how can we enjoy it? Not just recognize it, but come to love the fact that God is transcendent. I'm going to take those two steps together through Isaiah 40. Now, if you found the passage, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read it? This is a little bit longer, but it's worth our time to read the whole thing. So let's, let's read God's word beginning in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor it beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that won't rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. 
They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. How to see God's holy transcendence. That's the problem this passage takes up. It's one thing to read about his transcendence, just like it's one thing to read about life in medieval China or wherever. It's another thing to see it, to taste it, understand and recognize it. And that is why Isaiah 40 is in the Bible. We want to see God as he is as best we can. And Isaiah 40 communicates to us, I think, an example of the best strategy I've read for how to connect with God's transcendence. It's a strategy I mentioned last week. The strategy is this. Compare God. If you want to understand what it is for God to be beyond us, to be great and awesome because he's beyond us, you need to compare God to the things that you do experience that you consider to be powerful or majestic, that you consider to be great and beyond you? What is it that dwarfs you? What is it that makes you feel small? Take that thing, compare God to it, and you'll have a little taste of what it means that God is holy in his transcendence over us. That's what this passage is about. I just want to walk you through some of the details because they're beautiful. And here's your, here's your sort of biblical studies lesson for the day. Maybe, maybe you've heard this before. A lot of times when, uh, when writers of the Old Testament were doing poetry, one of the most common devices they would use to build their poems is a device that's known as a chiasm. It's where, it's where the poem unfolds in a mirror image of itself. So if it, was, if it was written out, if I had a whiteboard, what I would do is kind of draw something like this. This won't help you, those of you who are listening to this on audio, but sort of like a, a, the part of a triangle, so that part one is here, part two is here, part three is the center. Part four mirrors part two, same subject, same themes. Part five mirrors part one with the same subject and the same themes. That's what we have here in, in verses 20, or excuse me, 12 through verse 26. We have an example of this. So in, in verses uh, the first section is all about God as creator. So is the fifth section. The second section is about God and his power over the powerful of the earth. And the fourth section is also about that. And then at the center of it, the middle section, is about God's greatness over the idols. So just as a way of walking through this, I want to take the sections together. Instead of, instead of just going section by section, I want to talk about God's greatness over creation then God's greatness over the powerful of the earth, sort of him as the Lord of history, and then God's greatness over the idols. That's the way we'll move through it this morning. So God's greatness over creation. When we go on vacation, a lot of times what we want is an escape from the normal, right? We want a transcendent experience. And there's a sense in which I guess you know, Disney World or Six Flags provide you a kind of transcendence, right? It's not normal. But most of us, more often than not, you're likely to choose a place where the natural beauty is unusual. It's powerful. It puts you in awe. We go to the ocean. We go to the mountains. We go out west. There's a reason we go to these places. We go, we go because these things strike us as fundamentally beyond us. We may have been the first ones to create a lucrative commercial industry out of places like this, but we're not the first ones to notice this effect that nature has on us. And in fact, the, a lot of this passage is about teasing out these details. It starts with water. Something like 70% of the world is covered by it. 
we're awed by the smallest of these bodies. We pay extra for a beachfront room on the Gulf of Mexico because even that body of water dwarfs us and puts us in awe. And all of this water, we're told in verse 12, God holds in the hollow of his hand. He doesn't even need his fingers. Verse 12 moves on to the sky, to the heavens. Why do people go out west to the middle of the desert on vacation? It's not for the cactuses, right? It's for the skies. What are the images from the west that really profoundly move us? It's this sky that goes on forever that you can see because there's nothing to block it. There's no trees or anything. And, and, and it just fills your whole, your whole view. Even, even an, an Ansel Adams photograph can't capture it, right? There's just no way to, to put into, into film what the sky looks like when you look at it. And that's why we go there, to be in awe of this, this, this bigness that the sky represents. And we're told here in verse 12 that God measures the skies with a span. You know what that means? He measures it with the distance between his thumb and his pinky. He holds it out like this. That's how big the skies are to him. He measures them exactly according to his specifications, and he doesn't even need a ruler to do it. That's how big God is. Moves on from the skies to the mountains. Nothing is heavier than mountains, right? In our experience, just obviously that's not a literal statement I'm trying to make. And what we experience, these mountains are huge and they're rock and they're, they're immovable. God tosses them onto scales like a grocer trying to weigh a banana or an apple or something. They're nothing to him. And verse 14 tells us, God produces and rules over this world on his own. Without counsel, without a committee. I don't know a whole lot about art. I'm trying to learn about it. I'm trying to engage with that and and, and expand my horizons a little bit. But sometimes I am in awe of what a human artist can do to manipulate light and color and bring out great beauty on a canvas. What we're told here is that that God, unlike human artists, doesn't work with pre-existing materials. He's not inspired by a sunset to go and paint his own. He thinks them up without counsel. Without committee, in his own mind, he invents the colors of a sunset or a maple tree in the fall. Those come from here. That is who this God is, unaffected by the counsel of any other being. And finally, the text, jumping to section 5, brings us back to the stars. Maybe the, the greatest symbol of his bigness, his transcendence over creation. I think some of this is lost on us because we live in a city and we don't see a lot of stars because the light keeps us from seeing it, even the best of conditions. That wouldn't have been the case for the people who were reading Isaiah for the first time. They would have been able to see it like a blanket over them. And there is a reason that their neighbors worshipped the stars. They worshipped them as gods because they felt dwarfed by them, because the scale of them was, was more than their minds could make sense of. And so they assume they had to be divine. And what this passage is saying, what we come to in verses 25 and 26, is a statement that far from being divine, these stars, every single one of them is chosen by God, given a name by God, called out and numbered by God, and not one of them is missing. The ancients worshipped them, and they didn't even know the half of their bigness. 
I struggle to, to, in my brain, which is a humanities, not a science's brain, I struggle to, to understand the bigness of the universe when, I'm, when I'm, I hear these stats thrown at me. Uh, I read something recently, though, that, that helped me on, on the scale of the universe, what we know about it now that the ancients didn't know. Do you know that, the, that, that our sun, of course, is a star in the Milky Way galaxy. Did you know that the, that the, the closest star... Here's, here's an image for how, to, how, to, how big even the Milky Way is. If, you, if our sun is to be represented by a penny, and you put it down here in Nashville on the street, did you know that on, this, on that scale, the closest star to the sun would be like dropping another penny in St. Louis? On the, on the scale, right, 350 miles away, if pennies are the scale, that's how close the next star in our galaxy is. And did you know that our galaxy... Our galaxy alone, if you were to travel across it, would take something like 100,000 years to get from one side to the other, longer than human history so far. If, if you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years. And did you know that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is only one of an untold billions of galaxies? They're still finding new ones. And God calls them out like a teacher taking attendance in class. He calls roll and knows them all. And because we're told of his strength and his power, not one of them is missing. Who is like this God? To whom will you compare him? He's the God over creation. And that helps us taste his transcendence. He's also the God over the powers of the earth. Struggle on what word to give to this. The Lord over history, perhaps. The Lord over the powerful. The Lord over the rulers and the nations. That's the second subject. Comes out in verses 15 to 17 and then again in verses 21 to 24. If we're sometimes awed by the bigness of the natural world, I think that also in different ways, at different times, we're put in awe by people by their power, by their ability to influence us. It could be that we fear them and what they could do to us. It could be that we crave approval from them or we want the advantage that could come from having them on our side. Underlying it, whatever, however it looks, is a sense that, that these people, these forces, these powers make us feel small. Subject to their influence, one way or the other, for good or ill. We're at their mercy. Could be the leaders of the other political party. Could be, for you, the forces of radical Islam or communism. Could be a thousand smaller scale examples. Could be the boss whose approval of you is the difference between having or not having a job. Could be the advisor who holds the keys to you taking the next step in your career as a graduate student. It could be... It could be the parent or the spouse whose opinion of you means so much, whatever the source. We call this phenomenon the fear of man. The fear of man. And we are in awe of those who have a power we can't match or control. For Israel at the time, their focus, their, their fear of man was channeled towards their neighbors. Israel was basically a chess piece. They were, maybe the better metaphor was they were the chess board. 
for what for them was the known world, ruled by Egypt over here and Assyria up here and Babylon over here, and they were competing for the region, and Israel was smack in the middle. They were kind of the board on which these nations were playing chess, and they felt their powerlessness. We're going to get into details of that later in our series. It, it really, their, their, their tendency not to trust God was directly related to their, the bigness of these powers in their minds and the fact that they seemed bigger and more vivid than God and His promises. And so God, here in Isaiah 40, compares Himself to the nations. Beginning in verse 15, they are but a drop in a bucket. And God is the one who holds all the earth's water in the palm of his hands. They're a drop in a bucket. He holds all the water in his hand. And you're worried about nations. They're like the dust, we're told, verse 15 and 16. They're like the dust that you don't even bother wiping off a scale because it's not heavy enough to affect the price, right? You don't even bother to wipe it because it's empty. It's meaninglessness. It doesn't affect the weight of what you really want to weigh. They're the dust on the scale. Who's concerned about this? Certainly not the God who weighs mountains on his scales. Indeed, verse 17 tells us they are like nothing before him. They are less than nothing. They are emptiness. They're a black hole. Obviously, he's not saying that God doesn't care about individuals who have power or about nations. The point is that their power compared to God's may as well not be power at all. It's nothingness. There is no match for him. The subject returns to us in verses 21 and 24. Same, same sort of thing. You're concerned about these rulers who have power over you in these nations? God is the one who stretched out the heavens like a tent for him to dwell in. They are like grasshoppers before him. He brings them to nothing. He makes them like emptiness as even less than nothing. That's who God is compared to the powerful. The final comparison comes in the middle of our passage verses 21 to 20 or excuse me uh, verses 18 to 20 God is compared to idols the idols that Israel's neighbors and sometimes Israel were tempted to make as a way of sort of putting in their control on their terms the forces in the world that they couldn't control they wanted to domesticate those forces that they couldn't control give them some form something they could see and touch and worship And this section applies the thinking from the other sections. God's greatness over creation, God's greatness over the powers of the earth to God's comparison to idols. And says, to whom will you liken God? To your idols? Seriously? You know where those idols come from. You know how the sausage gets made. You just take whatever resources you have and you take them to somebody who knows how to make something and they make it into a God. That idol is whatever you were able to afford it to be. It is no bigger than your resources. It is the opposite of transcendence, right? It is under your power and no more powerful than you because it depends on whether you can afford gold and a really good goldsmith or just a piece of wood that you hope won't rot and a guy who knows how to carve it. The best thing you can hope for is that it won't topple over. Did you get that? They, t- they choose wood that won't, r- that won't rot and hopefully won't move. How far removed from the, from the God who holds mountains on his scale and all of the water in his hand. Who can you compare this God to? These idols consume. They never give. They don't hear you when you call on them. 
They can't respond to you if they could hear you. They only are what you're able to make them. You carry them around on your back. But the Lord of creation and history won't be domesticated. He won't be put into our service on our terms. He won't be bartered with or paid off. He is the transcendent Holy One. So you worship Him. That's how to see God's transcendence. Take what you already value, what you worship, what you're in awe of and dwarfed by, and then compare it to God, and you'll, have, you'll be a step closer to tasting what it means that God is transcendent and holy in His transcendence. Now, with what time we've got left, I want us to think about how we could come to enjoy God's transcendence. Because part of the thing that separates us from him and his transcendence, part of, part of the uh, byproduct of how distant and abstract he is in his transcendence, is that it, it's difficult to see how it's good news for us. How it would change something about us or our condition, or our, our circumstances. How to, how to take this thing we read about and implant it in the, in the ups and downs, the, the joys and the sorrows of life as good news for us to be enjoyed that's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. How can we enjoy God's holy transcendence? I want to do that in three steps. God's holy transcendence demands our worship. It invites our trust. And it stirs our hope. God's transcendence is central to the gospel, which is the Bible's main subject. The good news about what God has done to save us from ourselves. We have to understand his transcendence to understand that. I'm going to start with, with worship. I think it's the first and the most basic response to the picture of God that we've seen here. That's what, you're, that's what it's supposed to do in you, is to strike you with almost a, a numb sense of awe. And to drive you from that place to valuing God more than you value other things. That's one way of understanding what we mean by worship. It's just... Uh, it's value. It's about what you value, what you defer to or re- rest on, trust in. To worship something is to value it highly. And seeing this picture of God is meant to drive us to that. So to, so to add some, some teeth to it, next time you're in awe of the natural world, what this passage would have you do is be driven by that sense of awe, that sense of smallness that you feel when you see the mountains or the ocean to be driven by that sense of awe into a time of worship, into a taste of what it means that the God who is behind all of this amazing natural beauty, the God who is the reason it exists and who is only faintly foreshadowed in it, that same God is your possession in Jesus. So you worship him. Here's the way Jonathan Edwards put it, one of my favorite writers. When the next time you're at the beach or even at Edwin Warner Park and you're struck by something about the beauty of God's natural world, I want you to think about this. That as Edwards put it, these things, whatever it may be for you, are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. Worship Him. Here's another reason to worship Him. And this one may come with a different twist. This one may be a little less expected, I think, than, than being driven by the natural beauty of the world into worship. 
the next time you feel awed by the powers of this world, worship him. The next time you feel awed by the powers of this world that you can't control, worship him. In other words, the next time you're afraid of somebody, of what they can do to you or withhold from you, the next time you're afraid of their influence, the influence that you long to have on your side but you can't control, I want you to remember that compared to your maker, whoever they are are but grasshoppers. They are empty and less than nothing. In the words of Paul, who applies this idea of God's transcendence to the beauty of the gospel that we see through Jesus, in the words of Paul, God, the maker and sustainer of all that is, God is the one who justifies, who says, you are good, you are approved and accepted by me. God is the one who justifies. So who can condemn? What power out there would threaten to separate you from the only approval that ever means anything? God is the one who justifies. Who can condemn? And you have his approval through Jesus. Do you believe that? Is that enough for you? What more do you really need? When you're tempted to fear others and their power over you, Remember and worship and fear the one who has become your father. Remember the promise of Isaiah 54 that your maker has become your husband and worship him for it. That's the first thing we're invited to, I think, by this picture of transcendence, to worship God, be driven by what we're in awe of in this world, to worship the one who is beyond all of that and never confined by it. The next thing I think we're meant to do, and this one gets even more directly to the point of this passage, is we're meant to trust Him. In fact, I think you could say that this is the driving point behind the whole presentation. Especially where it picks up in verse 27. 27 to 31 are all about trusting this God who has revealed Himself to you as greater, as transcendent beyond all the powers of the natural world and all that's created by Him. We're meant to trust him. The whole passage, one commentator pointed out, is written like a disputation, like a lawyer calling into question the evidence presented by the other side. That's why it always asks questions almost sarcastically, like, who does this? Who can you liken, to whom can you liken God? And the reason it has that kind of adversarial tone, it comes out clearly in verse 27. Israel is in the other dock. Israel is on the other side making a case based on their experience, based on evidence from things they were going through, that God was not who he claimed to be, that his promises weren't trustworthy. Israel was saying, verse 27 says, my way is hidden from the Lord. Look what's happened to me. My right is disregarded by my God. Injustice defines my experience, and God clearly doesn't care because he hasn't done anything about it. Or maybe he's just not powerful enough to do something about it. Isaiah is looking ahead into the future to the time when Israel would be captured and taken away and imagining what they will say about God then. What he's imagining is that Israel would say what we say. Right? They would have asked, could God deliver, given what's happened, in the same way that we're always tempted to say when something drastic or unexpected trumps our plans, when something uncomfortable or deeply inconvenient disrupts our comfort when something tragic 
questions our sense of value, our sense of self, whether or not God cares for us. When those things happen, we're tempted to say with Israel, my way must be hidden from the Lord. For them and us, the fact that something has happened we don't enjoy or didn't want is proof that he can't deliver, that he isn't trustworthy. It can be anyway. That's where we naturally go. We get to the place described in verses 27 to 31 with two words. They're translated here, faint or weary. We're told God is not faint or weary, but even young men, even those who are most energized and most optimistic also grow faint and weary. And those two words... Here's, here's the way they're described by one uh, Old Testament scholar. I thought this was, this was eye-opening for me. Both of them, put together, describe being overcome by circumstances. In one case, tired or faint, it's being overcome by a lack of inner resources. That's the way he put it. Basically, the, the strength you've got in yourself to deal with what you've got to deal with is gone. You're tired. You are faint. The other word, weary, is to be overcome by, by harsh, objective life conditions. That's the way he put it. Things that are outside of you that you just can't deal with anymore, that you're just beat down by so that you're, you're weary and you cry out, How long, O Lord? Sound familiar? Here's the promise. That he is bigger than our minds that his ways are unsearchable, that we, we can't know why he allows us to go through the things that we go through that cause us to be faint and weary, but that he is everlasting, that he is the creator of everything that is, that he is the one who will never faint or grow weary. And, and here's the bottom line, here's the punchline, that he aims himself and all of his inexhaustible resources to us if we are willing to acknowledge that on our own we are faint, we are weary, we are spent and have nothing more. If we are, if we are humble enough to throw ourselves on him, then the God who measures the skies with a span and holds the waters of the earth in his palm and tosses the mountains on his scale. The God before whom the nations, the mightiest of them, are but a drop in a bucket or a fleck of dust on the scale. That same God, with his inexhaustible resources, is for you. They who wait for the Lord, who trust in him, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and they will not faint. Here's the last thing I want to say. It builds directly on this, this point about a call to trust in Him as the one who has shown Himself to us fully in Jesus the God who took our sin on him and invites us, in spite of our emptiness, to trust in him and, and be full, be forgiven, is also the God who promises to give his strength to us. To give something of his... Tra- here's, here's the really mysterious part. To give something of his transcendence to us. 
This is the point I described. As, as, as stir, this passage, this picture of God's transcendence is meant to stir our hope in God. And here's what I mean by that. I've realized we've got to walk, walk lightly here because the Bible doesn't fully flesh out what it means to share in the glory of God. But through the New Testament, there are references all over to our salvation as meaning not just that God takes away our sin, but that He gives us something new an identity that's carved out by Jesus, a joining to Jesus that takes us beyond what's natural for us and to a transcendent place of glory, that that's what's waiting for us. 2 Corinthians describes it like this, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I don't know what that means or what that looks like, but it's something of this transcendence that puts God outside of our experience is given to us as a gift. Sometime, somehow, when we live as Jesus lives on the other side of the grave, we will share in His glory and be everlasting and not weary as He is everlasting and not weary. We will reign with Him, not be subject to the evil powers or forces beyond our control. And we will even, in some mysterious sense, we are going to transcend nature in the new heavens and the new earth. And the same transcendent glory that we love to see in a sunset or in an ocean or in the, the, the trees in the fall, we're going to have that. It'll be true of us. We will shine like the stars. I don't know how it works, but the last thing I want to do is read to you a passage from one of the guys who helps me to connect and visualize mysterious promises like this one the best. I hope this will fire your hope as you think about the transcendent God who is giving himself to you so that you can share in his transcendence, this is a, a short passage from C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. Even this essay is a little bit mysterious to me. It's one reason I'm just going to read it and pray and sit down because I don't know exactly how to explain it to you, but I think with you, that you, like me, will be encouraged by it. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. He's talking about the, the awe that we have in nature and the way that it drives us to worship. It's already ours in one sense. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more something the books on aesthetics take little notice of. But the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want to merely see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves and to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why we've peopled the air and the earth and the water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves that though we cannot, yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty and grace and power of which nature is the image. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't. Or not yet. For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, 
if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. Does that ring true? We're on the outside of the world, on the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory. Or rather, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Oh, Father, we long to see your glory, to worship you for it, and in some mysterious sense, to share in it as those who are proof of your power, as those who have nothing to offer but faintness and weariness in and of ourselves, but who can be transformed into those who soar on eagles' wings because your power is up to the task. We want to glorify you by sharing the transcendence that you give to us. We long for that day. From here, from, from what has been termed the shifting shadows of the earth, we know from experience that it's not ours yet that we're on the wrong side of the door, but we are pounding on it and we are longing for Jesus to return so that we can see you as you are and to be transformed into your image from one degree of glory to another. So God, please now keep us faithful as we wait. Protect us from Israel's struggle to believe that you are true to your word, able to defend them, able to uphold their right. Help us as we suffer to trust that nothing catches you by surprise and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Help us to worship, to trust, and to hope in your transcendence, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.